2: I'm Ido Balkin to be
1: I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, DC.
2: It's Friday, the 7th of August.
1: Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman.
2: Thank you for joining us. Emily, how's DC?
1: DC is fine, Ido. Thank you so much for stepping in. Our normal Jeremy Cliff is off this week. DC is fine, although Congress is still uh, at an impasse with respect to coronavirus, the coronavirus pandemic relief which is unfortunate for all Americans and how is Tbilisi
2: Georgia has been rather unfortunately thrust into the world's limelight this week because it was where the ammonium nitrate that blew up in Beirut was originally manufactured and so the the ship that brought the ammonium nitrate to Beirut that was meant to go to, Moza, to Mozambique set off from the Black Sea port of Batumi obviously as basically nothing to do with Georgia, but it's still kind of quite unfortunate for a small country, which is not in the eye of the world all that often.
1: That brings us nicely to our next segment. Before we introduce our guest, Ido, could you speak a bit about what your moment of the week, the moment that you think will go down in history, what has it been?
2: Yeah, so my moment of the week is obviously related to that, which is the tragic explosion in Beirut, which seems to have killed about 150 people so far. And injured I think 5,000 obviously that's the tragedy itself which is horrific but it also seems to have crystallized a lot of anxieties and worries about how Lebanon has governed and the kind of corruption that has taken place since the civil war. Oz Katarji wrote a really really good piece comparing it to Chernobyl in terms of the kind of institutional failures that led to errors getting compounded and problems being overlooked to the point that they crystallize and erupt so so tragically what's yours
1: my moment of the week is this week Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi laid the foundation for the Ram Temple in Ayodhya which is a city in northern India the site had until for hundreds of years until 1992 been the site of a mosque in 1992 the mosque was destroyed by Hindu extremists and and some Hindus believe that in India and elsewhere believe that prior to being a mosque, this had been a site of a temple. So it's it's destroyed in 1992, and then last year in 2019, a court said, no, no, it's 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 historically right that this be the site of a temple. So Modi inaugurated it this week, and this comes. There's sort of two things in the in the background and the foreground here. One is that this comes. As COVID nineteen is surging in India, in Uttar Pradesh, which is the state where IODA is, there's 100,000 have been infected by by COVID nineteen. That's that's confirmed cases, and it also comes, you know, in this climate of ever increasing Hindu nationalism in India. And with that, that heavy introduction to this podcast, onto our guest, we are so thrilled that our guest this week is our very own Sophie McBain. She is special correspondent at the New Statesman and the author of, from the summer special, a really excellent piece called What It Means to Be a Hero, we'll be talking about today. So, Sophie, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So to sort of introduce the piece
1: to those who have not had the good fortune of reading it so far, or just yet, to my mind, it was about two things. It was about both the science of heroism and, and sort of who's maybe more predisposed to acts of heroism, but it was also about people who are thrust into positions where they need to act heroic when they shouldn't be in those positions in the first place. Can you you speak a bit about, about the tension maybe between the two?
3: Yeah, I think it was something that has really come up during the pandemic in terms of the huge amount of gratitude that we feel for healthcare workers and other essential workers who have behaved in a way that's really heroic in the sense that they have been placed at extraordinary risk in doing their jobs. They had to go to work even when there was high chance that they could get sick at work and they've been failed and and underprotected. So we call them heroes and and in many ways they have behaved heroically. We feel a huge amount of gratitude for them but on the other hand there's a danger in labelling people as heroic in circumstances where they haven't chosen to behave that way, and that it sort of almost excuses the fact that they were failed, like, it, oh, it's fine, these people are heroes, so it's okay that they were, that nurses were sent to work dressed in garbage bags for protection in, in one hospital in Queens. We were
1: speaking about Beirut earlier in this in this recording, and I thought reading the stories and watching the images of people coming together to help one another in the, the wake of this horrific event. I thought of your piece because it's here's a people who, by all accounts, are frustrated with their governments and with the political class and with the inaction. And I was wondering if you, as the author of the piece and also somebody so knowledgeable about Lebanon and Beirut, thought of that too.
3: Yeah, I thought about it a lot. I thought that on on the one hand, there's been so much that's happened in in Lebanon's history that could stand in the way of people wanting to help one another. It's this hugely unequal society with huge amounts of political problems and divides along sectarian lines. And yet here were people coming from all over the country to Beirut to help their fellow citizens who'd who'd lost their homes, who'd lost their loved ones. And I also thought about another thing I talk about in the piece is about the meaning that we get from labelling people as heroes, why we feel a need to celebrate them, and what do heroes mean for us socially. And I think there was videos that went viral of, for instance, a migrant, worker who has protected the child in her care and, and picked her up as the as glass was shattering all around them and tried to protect this child, or the image of a a maternity nurse on a neonatal ward who's holding three tiny babies and, and calling for help in the hospital that's been destroyed by the blast. I think that we feel the a need to find examples like this to to understand that amid all this horror we can still find moral examples, that we can find examples of the kinds of people we wish there were more of in the world and the kind of qualities that we wish existed more broadly in our society.
2: That's really interesting. Um, You mentioned the role of viral videos in this, and I, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that, because obviously this is true for everything that goes viral. It creates a kind of instant sensation out of moments that... Otherwise, would go unremarked. I mean, that's basically the definition of viral content. But um, it takes on a special significance or a particularly sort of meaningful significance when we're talking about acts of heroism. So, like, I'm sure you'll remember that a couple of years ago, there was an incredible video of this guy from Mali climbing. A building in Paris and rescuing, I think, a baby out of from a fire and then calming back down. And, you know, when Viral went around the world, the guy was found. He was an undocumented immigrant. He was brought to the Elysee Palace, I think, given citizenship or at least residency. Like, obviously, it's kind of on the surface, like, great, whatever. But also, why does it take, first of all, an act of heroism and second of all, being filmed to be treated like a human being if you are a undocumented immigrant? And so I was wondering if you could talk about the, the sort of role of virality in how we perceive heroism today.
3: I mean, I think there's certainly an arbitrariness in that lots of acts of heroism will never be filmed and, and never be recognised. And, and quite often people who behave very heroically and these kind of have a go heroes are actually very self-effacing and, and they pull someone off the tracks and the New York subway, and then they try to melt back in the crowd. And one of the people I interviewed in this piece, a political scientist at the University of Nebraska, who's been interviewing lots of heroes, the kinds of people who rescue people from subway tracks or whistleblowers, says that one thing that they pretty much all have in common is that when you ask them about it, they say, oh, I was only doing what anyone in my position would have done and they don't see themselves as in any way extraordinary. Of course they are because we know that most people don't behave heroically when they're tested, even though most people think of themselves as people who would do the right thing. Uh,
1: They let us pretend that what the heroes say is true. Right. So maybe this is sort of a cynical reading of this and feel free to push back. But the people who, who do these heroic acts you write in your piece say the thing that they all have in common, as you just articulated, is that they all say I was just doing what anybody else would do. But actually, that's not true at all. And I wonder if the phenomenon that you is describing of these viral moments kind of lets us think that more of us would do that in that in their position because we see these examples of it and they go viral and we we like them right we can sort of attach our own personal hope and aspiration and and, you know we can quote mr rogers and say we're all looking for helpers but in fact the reason that it that it is heroic is that most people would not do that am i being too cynical about this
2: what really strikes me about this is that obviously when when there's an act of heroism that goes viral and that is filmed I mean, I would generally assume that people who are doing said acts of heroism don't know that they're being filmed, because usually that's not how these situations work. And so you wonder like, how many others don't get filmed, and that works for absolutely anything. But then in in situations where these acts of heroism, and because of the fact that they become famous, then lead to various other rewards, it, it kind of leaves me quite uneasy, really.
3: I mean I think the thing here is that if you focus on these individual acts of heroism it's a way of avoiding looking at bigger structural problems you can individualize things and in the case of this guy from Mali you can celebrate him without celebrating migrants in France more generally and thinking about how we how our society is is structured the power structures again in in the case of covid It's much easier to look at individual people who were behaving heroically than it is to really ask about and think about the way in which we've historically valued care workers or service workers who are now placed at huge amounts of risk and being paid minimum wage for their work.
1: That's such a great point. And it it really makes one or makes me think at least of how many of these examples of heroism come about precisely because the state has failed us or because some societal contract has broken down, right? So you write in your piece about people who helped Jewish people during the Holocaust and during World War II. And of course, those people are heroes, but they should not have been put in a position where they had to risk their lives to help other people's lives because the latter lives should not have been at risk in the first place. You spoke about your friends in Libya who spoke truth to power at great personal risk. And I I thought it was such an interesting connection to draw between care workers, for example, now in COVID-19 and people you knew back in 2011 in Libya. So if you could speak to me a a bit about how you thought this through and how in your mind you came to that connection.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the piece came about through two things that I've been thinking about for a long time. And one was looking at the concept of of COVID heroes and what we are getting when we, there was a clap for carers every Thursday evening for a while in the UK, or the applause for healthcare workers that I witnessed every evening at 7pm in New York. And I understood that while there was Um, an extent to which we wanted to to give back and express gratitude for healthcare workers. We were also getting something from that sense of gratitude, from the sense of unity. But then the, the, the thing that I've been thinking about much longer was, so I moved to Libya in 2008. So during the Gaddafi era, and I made a great number of friends there. And because of the political environment, we didn't necessarily, when most most friends, we couldn't really talk about things like politics, or the ways in which as young people in their early 20s, our futures were so likely to completely diverge because of the very different countries we came from. And so in 2011, when some of them very early on in the revolution were Willing to go out onto the streets where they knew they would be fired on and risk their own lives for this very distant, abstract cause. Ever since then, I'd wondered, you know, is there some way that you can predict who would be willing to do that? Was there some quality that they shared that, for instance, I don't have? Because I think the other thing I thought about was, wow, I fully support their their cause, their desire to enjoy fundamental freedoms and have a say in the future of their country. But I just don't think I have that level of bravery and have that willingness to sacrifice myself. And so ever since then, really, I've I've thought about what, what is it about those people who are willing to do that. And whenever a story goes viral, someone who runs into a burning building, there was a in a Cairo train crash a few years ago, there was a kiosk worker who ran into a burning building to save lots of passengers who probably wouldn't give him the time of day at any other point. And just trying to understand what is it is about people who are willing to do that are there some sets of qualities that they all share? And why don't I seem to have the, these qualities myself?
2: That's really interesting. Yeah, there's a, there's a sort of theme running through your piece and also your answers here, which is juxtaposing individuals and systems. And you open in your piece with the case of the Chinese doctor who is now famous, who's a name I'm probably going to butcher, Li gang who tried to warn China and I guess the world by extension about a dangerous new virus that he'd seen and was reprimanded quite harshly and ended up dying from coronavirus. I wonder if you can talk a bit more about how you see sort of oppressive systems and individual heroism in the context of pushing back against systemic oppressions.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think these small acts of heroism can sometimes be historically very decisive but also in the end that's probably one of the biggest defenses that we have against authoritarian governments is the hope that enough people are willing to do the right thing even at a cost to themselves that they have a sense of solidarity with their fellow humans and a very strong sense of moral identity And that even when it becomes very difficult to stand up for the greater good and stand up for pro-social values and marginalized groups, that they will continue to do so. I have
1: one last question for you before we move on to our next segment, which is, I opened this podcast with this. you know, in the United States, you have a government at the federal level, certainly. And I would say in some cases, I'd say in local levels with which people are very frustrated because there's this, this sense that, well, we're trying to do our part and wear masks and stay home and physically distance. And where are you? Like, where's the support for care workers? Where's the support for parents who are trying to teach their kids? Where are the support for, where's the support for teachers? And I'm curious what you as a person who lives in New York, but as we all do, works for a fine British publication and is British and is soon going to be, sadly for us, going back. How is this conversation on individual sacrifice versus state failure or success? Is it comparable here in the US and in the UK?
3: I think it's interesting the extent to which, for instance, the wearing of masks in both countries has been portrayed as this great attack on individual freedoms, rather than as this step that citizens can take to protect themselves to some extent, but but mostly to protect one another. And I, I think what's interesting In New York, where we suffered so tremendously during the spring and there is no New Yorker who can be untouched by the deadliness of of this virus. I don't think you can live in New York City and still think that coronavirus is comparable to the flu or a hoax. And I think that that has created a real sense of moral obligation amongst people. I I really don't see many people who are flouting rules around mask wearing, whereas, for instance, in the UK, which has still been very, very hit very hard, I don't think that things are thought about in the same kind of moral terms that I feel like they're, they're talked about here in the city. And I think in the end, in both countries, the big story is that people have been failed by their governments who acted too slowly, acted too indecisively. In the case of the US, I mean, just the response has been disastrous on absolutely every level. But in the end, the pandemic response is also always going to rely on the the goodwill of individual people that we are all we've all been required to make sacrifices, whether it's going to work in really dangerous conditions or wearing a mask or not going to see your family or staying home and not doing your job self-isolating for two weeks because you have possible coronavirus symptoms but you can't get a test so who knows it might just be a cold
1: Mm. as a reminder sophie's piece is what it means to be a hero acts of courage in the age of covid19 okay Ido, bring us into our next section please
2: and now it's time for a section that our colleagues at the new Statesman podcast like to call
1: you ask us we have a question from an anonymous listener that touches on our discussion right now, sort of. Will the nation state survive the current rebalancing of international political power? Just to rephrase the anonymous listener's question, we've been discussing in part failures of the state and failures of societies to take care of their people. We also have been discussing or touched briefly on the rise of nationalism at a time when we have evidence that nationalisms cannot save you from, say, global pandemics. Sophie, as you are our guest, we will let you take the first stab at this heavy question. What do you think the future has in store for the nation state?
3: Yeah, it's definitely a heavy question. I mean, I think what's been very interesting is that in order to attempt to contain the virus, there's been a huge restrictions on On travel, there has been a new concern about the vulnerabilities posed by having complicated international supply chains, what it means if you are no longer able to produce enough food to feed the population, your own PPE, your own medical equipment. And there's also been an awareness that ultimately It has been national governments who have had to step in to impose lockdowns and then to commit to unprecedented levels of public spending in order to avert the worst of the economic crisis, which all kind of points towards a sort of reassertion of the nation state. But equally, the virus has been able to spread because borders are nonetheless still very porous and what it means in terms of the nation state in the sense of an imagined sense of community whether in the economic or the political and the political turmoil that will follow the pandemic leads to a strengthening of forms of quite exclusionary forms of nationalism is a little bit harder to say or to predict but doesn't seem too unlikely.
2: Yeah, so I'm going to use this question as an excuse to push back on the idea that what's called the civilization state is unstoppable and is rising. So Aris Rusinos has a really, really interesting essay, which I recommend everyone read in Unheard, about what he calls the irresistible rise of the civilization state, which is a state which in its modern form derives its identity from a sort of long standing civilization and he particularly cites china turkey and russia as examples and he he also talks about how the west is sort of trying to build a counter example to this he cites macron's belief that europe needs to strengthen its role as a civilization in order to survive in the modern world but he's sort of rather more pessimistic about that and i'm just not that convinced that the civilization state is what is termed the civilization state is, um, is kind of unstoppable in the way that Rusinos believes. Because, for example, he talks about how there's a Chinese scholar who believes that if the ancient Roman Empire had not disintegrated, then Europe could today be a medium sized civilizational state, and if the Islamic world Become unified under one modern regime, then it could also be a civilization state. But because both of those countries are gone, then China is the only country today with the world's longest continuous civilization that is basically sort of an empire that transitioned into a modern state. And he he also sort of has variations on this argument for Turkey and Russia. And, And I just don't believe that the argument is really as strong as it seems to be because if 35 years ago you'd said that the Soviet Union derived its roots from ancient roots and was kind of a bunch of peoples melded together in a great civilization that had evolved in such a way to form the modern state. You would have been completely right, but you would also have seen the country disintegrate five years later. And I don't really see any reason to believe why, for instance, China, which is also a multi, multi-ethnic state, is sort of inherently different. Emily, what do you think?
1: I mean, I feel like I say this every week. I think that what we have right now in the U.S., to you know, a different extent in the U.K., in India, in Brazil, I don't see how any of this, how these G.D.s go back into their lamps or bottles. So I, and you, and you hear this a lot when you travel in different parts of the world. Like, uh, for example, you know, the justification for the Ram Temple goes back to something that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago in this sort of, and so I think that we're, we're talking actually about two connected ideas, right? I think that nationalisms can derive support from their civilizational foundations, but history, and as we're seeing now, national pride and nationalism can ultimately bump up against the reality of an interconnected world. So that is my take on that. We have a second question, which is how might Middle East policy be different under Biden, e.g., would he continue Trump's withdrawal from Afghanistan? I'll take this one. It's a great question. Yes, I think he probably will. I think a Biden policy in the Middle East would certainly be different than a Trump policy in the Middle East. I think he'd probably try to rejoin or um, revive the, J- the JCPOA. That is the Iran nuclear deal. I think he would probably consult with allies a bit more than than Trump does. But I think what I would encourage listeners of this podcast to appreciate is that, particularly if they are not in the United States, is that people here are extremely war-weary. We have been in Afghanistan for almost two decades now, and in the meantime, been in Iraq as well. And there was talk of at some point going to war war over Syria, and people are, are tired of it and are looking around and asking, what's it all for? There's a reason that the Quincy Institute, which was founded to end endless war, got as much attention as it did. And it's not just because it took... Funding from both George Soros and and Koch, so I think that we can expect a different policy, but one that's but one that yes is is still based on the idea that Americans cannot continue to be at war indefinitely.
3: I think that's true. I think I mean for a start, we can expect actual Middle East policy rather than just a governed by a sense of national interest, rather than Trump veering from. Uh, from one idea to the next. I think the real challenge when it comes to ending these forever wars in the Middle East is that, on the one hand, that um, as you say, there's no appetite for continued military involvement. And there's also a strong understanding that you can't bomb countries to democracy. And America doesn't want to be the world's policeman, but it nevertheless wants to... I think Biden talks about demonstrating respected leadership and standing up to thugs and strongmen. And when it comes to the Middle East, there's there's a cost to not being involved as well. Other countries will continue to intervene in regional conflicts, including Iran and Turkey and Russia. And so how it actually plays out whether Biden is able to fully withdraw from, well, I mean, he's said that he will continue to engage militarily to fight ISIS and al-Qaeda. So while there is no appetite for conflict, it's also very, very hard for the US to retreat from the region.
2: Thanks to everyone who sent in your questions. Please send us more at youaskus.co.uk so we can embarrass ourselves further. And look for our announcement on Wednesday of our guests next week on our international Twitter account, at Statesman World.
1: As ever, for our final segment, we are going to take a look ahead. Sophie, what in global affairs will you be watching closely next week?
3: I'm going to be watching the aftermath of the disastrous explosion in Beirut on Tuesday. As Edo mentioned at the beginning, the death tolls already 150, 5,000 people have been injured more than a quarter of a million people have lost their homes so on the one hand looking at the humanitarian impact of this and and whether people are able to get the the food and and the shelter and the the tools they need to attempt to rebuild their lives but also looking at the political implications because even before this disaster there was a real Real huge levels of anger and distrust of the government. So, looking at what happens next politically in this really volatile part of the world. I think that's one for all of us to to keep an eye on. Ido, for what
1: will you be looking next week?
2: I'll be looking at Belarus, where there are presidential elections on Sunday, elections in inverted commas, because in Belarus, votes do not depend on voters. Alexander Lukashenko, who is the sitting president, is virtually guaranteed to win. But in a fair election, his challenger, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya would probably win. And Felix Light and I have got a piece talking about what could happen in the aftermath of the elections, because there's a real sense in Belarus, in Europe and in Russia that Lukashenko has been permanently weakened by this challenge, because there's, there's a real understanding that He's let the genie out of the bottle, he would lose a fair election. And so how he chooses to respond to protests that will follow the announcement of the result next week, most likely, will determine the future of Israel. And we think even if he manages to cling on through the sort of rigid dictatorship that he's built, his time is nonetheless limited. And what will you be looking forward to, Emily?
1: I wouldn't say that I'm looking forward to this. And I apologize to our listeners for once again teasing this. But as at least at the time of the recording, Joseph R. Biden has still not made an announcement as to who his running mate will be. Just kidding, Biden, take your time. I will be looking out for the announcement of Vice President Joe Biden's running
2: mate. How many times do you think we can use this?
1: Well, I'm hoping that this is the last time, Ido, but I don't appreciate your lack of confidence in my predictions. With that, all that remains is to say thank you to Sophie McBain, special correspondent for the New Statesman, for joining us. Thank you.
2: If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave us a review and tell your friends about it.
1: You can also tell a distant relative. This podcast is a great way to reconnect. As a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter and follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com backslash international
2: our producer is nick hilton thanks for listening and see you next week when i will also be hosting
4: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to
0: quince.com/style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh